0: Psalm 38 uh, this evening is where we continue onward and we're told in the prescript at the beginning of this psalm that it is a psalm to bring to remembrance and we'll see as we go through this psalm this seems to be David reflecting on a time when he was dealing with some of the consequences of some sinful mistakes that he had made in his life and David, just like you and I, was a man, but yet he was just a man at best. And David had certainly some major failures in his life, but just like you and I, he dealt with his own periodic mistakes, bad choices. The Bible tells us that there is no difference. We all sin. We all fall short of the glory of God. Again, if the standard is absolute perfection, It doesn't take a whole lot of thinking to recognize that nobody hits the mark, uh, that we're all imperfect people. We all fail in thought, word, and deed. And the Bible tells us God's perspective is that the whole world is guilty before God. And of course, that's ultimately we know the reason why our Lord Jesus had to come, because if there was something we could do uh, and we didn't ever fail, then there would really be no need for a savior. The whole concept of a savior implies that we need to be saved from something. And everybody needs to be saved from the same thing is that we're all sinful uh, and we all make mistakes. And David was no different. And, of course, the tragedy of sin is not just that it's bad, but it's bad for us. Uh, Yes, it's bad and it's wrong. It displeases God. But the bigger problem uh, beyond that is that it also brings bad things into our life, right? Because the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. That is, sin always pays It's participants, and what it pays us with is death. That is, it destroys things, it ruins things, uh, it takes away the life that God intends for us to have. And that happens, of course, in all different ways. It ruins the life and relationship we should have with God, it ruins our personal lives, it ruins our our marriage lives, our, our friendships, our family lives, it just has detrimental effects. And David here is seeming to speak this psalm as a way of bringing to remembrance some of the consequences and the hardships. That he went through because of some of his own sinful mistakes. Uh, some believe that this psalm of repentance, and that's kind of what it is, was actually read uh, by the Jews on the uh, Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur, when they would reflect one time a year upon their sins as a nation, and that could be possible, certainly would be very fitting for that. But let's look at it together. David begins by saying, O oh Lord, Do not rebuke me. And again, the idea of rebuke means to confront. Uh, That's the difference of rebuke and correction. Rebuke is confronting someone for error. Correction is actually showing someone how to adjust and change so that they can get out of their error and make a course correction. Uh, But rebuke is something that God does initially as he convicts us of our spirit. He confronts us, he challenges us with what we're doing wrong. And he says, Lord, don't rebuke me in your wrath. Notice David feared the, 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 the anger of God, the wrath of God. Though it's a righteous wrath, it's not as if God loses control like we do in wrath. His is a controlled anger. It's a justified anger, but it's his wrath against sin. He says, nor chasten me, that's the idea of discipline or correction, in your hot displeasure. Lord, he's saying, please cool off. Before you deal with me, I respect you. You're the almighty God. And if I've upset you, he's saying, please, Lord, uh, take a time out before you come and talk to me. Just, uh, you know, take a breather because, again, he's just implying his own fear of God, like a child would have a healthy fear, respect, you know, from the spanking of their father. And that's a totally understandable thing. You know, when I got in trouble, when I was a younger man, uh, to a degree, you know, I might've had a level of fear of my mother's punishment, but if it meant dealing with my father, uh, that was a whole nother thing. And my father kind of had like one of those, I used to say it was like a machine gun, uh, spanking hand where he would stand in the doorway and he'd tell you to get to your room. And I tell you, I mean, it wasn't just one SWAT boost lift into the room. It was, I mean, he could get poof, multiple shots in, just taking three or four steps to go to your bedroom. And uh, you feared that as a young man. You know, you didn't want to face the, the wrath and the hot displeasure of your father. And David had that respect towards God uh, as his father. He said, Lord, please don't chasten me in your hot displeasure for your arrows. He say, they pierce me deeply. And your hand, I feel like he says, is pressing me down. He felt the heavy hand of God upon him. He's talked about this in other Psalms, Psalm 32, and other places where he felt like the heaviness was upon him uh, because of his own sin. He says, verse three, notice it was also affecting him physically. He says, there is no soundness or health in my flesh because of your anger, nor any health in my bones because of my sin. So notice, verse three, because of my sin, he says, it brings about God's anger. And as the result of that, consequentially for David, it seems in this particular situation, it was even affecting his physical health. Now it's important to recognize there are certain times when sin can bring about physical health issues. Right There are things that we can do that are sinful and wrong uh, if you abuse alcohol, you can bring consequential problems to your health. Uh, you know if you behave in certain ways in sexual immorality, you can end up harming yourself physically contracting a, a sexually transmitted disease. I mean there, there are, you know if you, you know, have outbursts of wrath and you do something foolish and you get into a fight and you get all bu- well again, you can get all busted up and have a health problem because of an outburst of wrath. So there are indeed times when we can do certain things in sin and as a result suffer physical or health consequences. I think that there can be occasions too, not all times where God may even allow a physical affliction or maybe a health issue to be uh, a consequential way to get our attention. Maybe if we are living in continual disobedience, God has many different ways to get our attention. That being said, nowhere can you find justification in the entirety of the word of God that every time someone is sick or has a health issue, it is because of sin. So important to differentiate there. Uh, Can sin cause a health issue at certain times and occasions? Yes. But is all health issues or sickness or illness the direct result of sin? No, it's not. Uh, And that's where we need to be careful. There are those who want to create whole doctrines that if someone is sick or ill, the only reason they're sick or ill is because there must be some sin going on in their life or God must be getting them for something or they don't have enough faith to you know pronounce their own healing and to just name it and claim healing in the name of the lord uh, and, and that was remember the whole problem with job's situation is job was suffering tremendously as this incredible man of god and job had health issues and he was having circumstantial problems and they kept trying to pinpoint job there must be some sin you got to find it out man there must be some underlying sin either you're not telling us or you just haven't figured it out yet because You wouldn't suffer if you weren't living in sin somehow. And that was not the case at all. So we want to be careful. But in David's situation here, it is important to take note, and we see patterns of this in Scripture as well. David is actually suffering some health issue and problem in his body as a direct connection to whatever this sin was. And we're not certain, but it was causing him physical illness in some way. I think even just sometimes the stress and anxiety and emotional turmoil we put ourselves through when we live wrongly can even just cause all kinds of physical health issues when somebody's just living in a rebellious and immoral way. He says, verse 4, for my iniquities, notice what he says, have gone over my head. The picture there is like, it's like drowning. He says, "I, I literally feel like I'm drowning in the multitude of my iniquities. You know, if you've ever been in a bad place before where you were living in a manner way outside of God's will and that was not right, uh, maybe you've experienced it before where literally you just felt like you were drowning in your own sin. And this is what David's describing. He says, my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden, he says. They're too heavy for me. I, I can't even deal with the burden of guilt that he was feeling in his life. He says, my wounds are foul and festering because of my foolishness. I love how honest David is. He says, because of my own foolishness. Notice David never seemed to have a struggle when it came to his own mistakes and sins with blame shifting. I mean, David was always pretty quick to acknowledge that it was his own error. He says in Psalm 51, as he prays, he says, God, against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight and, and and david here he just acknowledges lord he says i am hurting i am wounded i am weighed down and burdened and miserable and i've wounded my own life he says and put heavy burdens upon myself in verse five he says for one reason because of my foolishness because of my foolishness you know that's the quick way to get yourself back out of a multitude of iniquities is when you start saying, this was just my foolishness. No excuses. It was my own foolishness. I did some foolish things and I'm hurting now because of it. That's the right way to get on a path out of that cesspool of sin and to get right back climbing up the mountain once again that the Lord wants to get us to, to get us out of those pits of sin when we're in them. He says, verse six, notice, I am troubled. I am bowed down greatly. I go mourning all the day long. So sin brought grief and remorse into his life. He says all day long, I I find myself now grieving and mourning over what's transpired. For my loins are full of inflammation. Now, none of us want that, right? And there is no soundness, he says, in my flesh. I am feeble, verse 80 says, and severely broken. But again, that's ultimately what God wants in a healthy way, sin to produce in our lives, that it would break us, that that it would bring a degree of brokenness in our spirit. He says, I am feeble, that is, I'm weak, he says. I am now severely broken. And boy, isn't it interesting sometimes to see how when a person lives in a sinful way or somebody makes some wrong sinful decisions, how a life can become severely broken. And you go, wow, that, that man is totally broken. That woman is just, I mean, just severely, just totally broken because of what happened. He says, I groan because of the turmoil of my heart. Again, David using very picturesque words. He's just describing how he was dealing with severe remorse, just severe regret. He says, I'm groaning, groaning, he says, because of the turmoil that my heart is in. And again, that was the regret the internal struggle he was feeling the turmoil within in his heart because of the regret of his own sinful mistake and the consequences it had brought he then prays verse nine lord all my desire he says is before you and my sighing it's not hidden from you lord you you hear me sighing with a heavy heart my heart pants my strength fails me As for the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. So notice here we see some other consequences that come from sin. And these should be things that deter us from wanting to sin because sin has consequences. It it brings things that are destructive, as we said, into our lives. David refers to here not only internal misery, right? That's pretty obvious in the prior verses. Anybody want to sign up for internal misery? (laughs) I, I don't internal misery that's one of the obvious things but another thing he mentions here in verses you know 10 and i think going onward he says there verse 10 my strength fails the idea is what the sin also do it weakens our lives it kind of renders us impotent right it, it kind of saps your strength mentally emotionally physically even right when you know that you've sinned and you're dealing with guilt and regret and struggling with condemnation and and you're just living in a way outside of the way that god intended you to live it it kind of just saps the strength out of you and you find yourself just feeling weak and and unable to function and again a lot of times it becomes difficult too because when a person's living in guilt it's very difficult for them to represent themselves in a strong way because they're under so much guilt themselves, they feel like, who am I to say anything to anybody else? Right? I mean, one of the devil's greatest tools to silence people from sharing the gospel or speaking what is right or sharing truth is to just get people entangled in sin. In sin. Right? Because if you're stuck living in sin and you feel internally miserable and condemned and rotten about yourself and, and you just feel weak and, and, and kind of like wiped out because of your own struggles... Do you think with strength and conviction, you're going to be able to speak into the life of someone else? You're going to be completely silenced, right? You're not going to want to say anything because you feel so weakened rather than having a sense of emboldenness to be able to speak what's true and helpful to other people. So the devil many times will sideline people. And you see this with David because ultimately David did not say certain things at times regarding sins in the lives of his children because of David's own failures, and so because of David's own sins, instead of confronting sin in the lives of his own family, he at times remained silent because he felt so weakened and in a sense impotent that he felt like, who am I to say anything to them? And so he just let them carry on the exact same sins. And again, this is kind of a very sad and tragic thing that happens. It weakens us as people. He also says, verse 10, as for my, the light of my eyes, it has gone From me, the idea is David says, I feel like now I'm walking in the dark. I used to feel like I was walking in the light. And when you walk in the light, what's the difference from walking in the light and walking in the darkness? You can see clearly, right? You have perspective. So what's David saying? He's telling us, here's another negative consequence of sin. It causes a person to lose their perspective. And when we enter into sin and we live in sin, our perspective gets way off track. And we see things in a very blinded way. That's why sometimes, you know, if you've ever been in that place before, the things that your heart is able to convince your mind to believe in your reasoning is absolute insanity sometimes. You know, I believe it was Wearsby used to always say, the heart will always make a convert of the mind. Boy, that's so true. When your heart desires something strong enough, even when it's wrong things, It will convert your mind to think in ways that are completely crazy sometimes and to make irrational, crazy, foolish decisions. Why? Because sin has darkened your perspective. And so like David here, the light of your eyes, you don't see things clearly. You're walking in the dark. And when you walk in the dark, you get off track, you stumble, you hurt yourself, you hurt others. And he says, this is also what's happened to me. He says, verse 11, my loved ones. Here's another painful consequence of sin at times. My loved ones and my friends, he says, stand aloof from my plague and my relatives stand afar off. That is, they were distancing themselves from David. Again, whether it was the physical plague that they were nervous about in his life that came from his sin in some way or whether it was just the plague of his sin period. What David refers to here in verse 11, another negative consequence of sin is it damages our relationships. It it damages our relationships, both with our friends, with our loved ones and our relatives. And I'll tell you, that is one of the things that sin will do. It will bring ruinous consequences and will cause relationships to be severed and people to be distanced from us that we care about and they'll separate from us and things will happen to bring tears and and hurt in relationships. And David was acknowledging that happens here. Verse 12, those also who seek my life, he said, lay snares for me. And those who seek my hurt, speak of my destruction and plan deception all day long. So it was sort of pile on. David's enemies thought, hey, why he's down? He's all the more weakened. Let's really run him into the ground. And it's almost as if we give opportunity to the enemy to have greater access when we're living outside of God's will. Verse 13, he says, but I, like a deaf man, do not hear. I'm like a deaf mute, he says, who does not open his mouth, unable to speak. Thus, I am like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth is no response. In other words, David's saying, verse 13 and 14, what can I really say? What can I say? I almost sense in verse 13 and 14, David's trying to indicate, look, I, I have no excuses there's nothing I can even say. I'm not gonna try and justify it. He says, he said, in whose mouth is no response. David says, I have no response. My own foolishness has created these problems for me and I have no response for it. I just need to embrace it and do the best I can in God's time to be repentant, and to turn the course back in the right direction to stop sowing the seeds in the field of sin and hope soon that that crop will just die off and the consequences will go away. And I'm not going to plant any more seeds over there and I'm going to start planting some right seeds over here and, and hope eventually that this will begin to take fruit and you can begin to enjoy that new fruit. And that's all you, you and I really can do when we make mistakes is put an end to the sinful sowing of seeds and wait for that old bad fruit to die off and sow good seeds and wait for that new fruit to begin to come. And really, it's not something so much to talk about as much as something to just start doing the right thing. And he says, I have no response. He says, well, what am I gonna say? He says, there's no response to this other than just to turn back to the Lord. And that's what he does. Look as he goes to verse 15, the shift. He says, for in you, Lord, I hope. That's my only hope, Lord, my family, my friends, everyone's turned away from me. I'm suffering because of my own foolishness. But he says, Lord, I'm going to just hope in you. I don't even have hope in myself right now, Lord, but I have hope in you because you're a good God and you're gracious and you can make beauty from ashes, the Bible says, right? So he says, Lord, my hope is in you. You will hear, O oh, Lord, my God, if no one else will listen to me. Thankfully, God, he says, you'll keep talking to me and you'll listen to me. You love sinners. For I said, hear me, lest they rejoice over me, lest when my foot slips, they exalt themselves against me. David's humble plea, verse 17, for I am ready to fall and my sorrow is continually before me. For I will declare my iniquity. He says, I'm not gonna hide my sin anymore. I'll acknowledge it. I will declare it openly. I will live with it. I'll embrace it and own it. And I will be in anguish over my sin. Boy, that's a good place to be when it comes to sin. You can tell his heart's changing now. He says, I don't want to continue in it. In fact, he says, I want to loathe that sin now. I want to hate it. I want to be heartbroken over it. Again, David in Psalm 51 ultimately alludes to this very thing where he there says in Psalm 51, he says, For you do not despise sacrifice, God, or I would give it. You don't delight in burnt offerings. He says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you won't despise. See, that's the sacrifice God wants when we sinned, is that we would just be brokenhearted and we would actually be in anguish over our own sin, that it would sadden us, that it would grieve us so that we would never want to return. To those same things again he says verse 19 but my enemies they're vigorous and they are strong he says and those who hate me have wrongfully multiplied those who render evil for good they are my adversaries because i follow what is good so it seems again as david was trying to turn back towards what was good turning back towards following he says what was good that his enemies and his adversaries were opposing him for doing what is right. And look, whether it is having done what's wrong and trying to turn back towards doing what's right, you can always anticipate one thing is going to happen. The Lord will be pleased and your enemies or your literal enemy, the devil himself, will be very displeased and will in an adverse way try and work against you, to keep you from turning back to following what is good. And he says, this is what was happening. He says, my adversaries, Lord, he says, they're attacking me. They're angering, upset with me and angry because I'm trying to follow what's good. And we have to remember this. Whenever we try and follow what's good, there will be a degree of opposition when it comes to following what is good. So therefore, David asked God to help him. He says, so Lord, do not forsake me or don't abandon me. I can't do this on my own. Don't forsake me, Lord, oh my God. Be not far from me. Lord, be near to me. Help me. I need your strength and power by your presence walking me through this life change, he says. Make haste to help me, O oh Lord, my salvation. So David turns to God asking for help to change. Psalm 39, David again writes here, and some believe it's connected to the events of Psalm 38 as David describes now his frailty and the reality that life is short. Um, He mentions some things regards his own struggles as well. We don't know contextually what the situation was, but let's look at it. David says, Psalm 39, I said, I will guard my ways. And then he tells us particularly what he's thinking about. I said, I will guard my ways lest I sin with my tongue. I will restrain my mouth with a muzzle while the wicked are before me. So David says, Lord, I need to guard my ways. I need to protect myself. And he says, this is what he was concerned about. Whatever was transpiring, he says, lest I, verse one, lest I sin, how, with my tongue. (laughs) You know, that is one of the chief ways that we are all very prone to sin. Oh, I don't sin i don't rob banks i don't cheat on my spouse i don't do anything wrong i don't even think any wrong okay maybe you don't but you talk you talk <laughs> and as soon as you say probably more than three four or five sentences eventually the bible says in the multitude of words sin is not lacking one of the ways we all sin and we all know it is we say things we should not say and, and whether it's the tone of our voice or the words that we use or who we're talking about or the way that we speak to someone and what we say or again. So he says, Lord, I got to guard my ways lest I sin with my tongue. David knew the potential. We all struggle with it, Right. Such an easy area to fail in is in our own words, the things that we say and do wrong with our own tongue. And he says, therefore, he says, to guard my ways, I have to restrain my mouth with a muzzle. <laughs> he says, I literally got to put a muzzle on my own mouth. I got to do what I can. Like, a, you know, you restrain a, an animal with a muzzle so it can't bite. He says, Lord, I got to put a muzzle over my mouth lest I sin with my tongue and and again james alludes to this in great detail in chapter three in his book you know james there speaks about how our tongue is this little tiny member and he says and yet it can turn the course uh, you know uh, of a situation with just this little tiny bit of influence and he refers to it like a rudder on a ship and he says like a little tiny rudder on a big massive ship with powerful currents in the ocean, a little tiny rudder can turn the course and the direction the ship goes. And he says, that's like our tongue. You know, our tongue, this little tiny thing in our mouth is able to completely turn the direction of a conversation. It can turn the entire course of where things go for a whole day, right? Sometimes (laughs) you say one or two things and you just set the course for the whole day now with your spouse or with your family or how things go at work because of just one or two things that our tiny little tongue manages to utter and again he speaks of our tongue being like a a, a thing that's full of deadly poison and how it can be like fire just a little spark can set a whole forest on fire and again James speaks in great detail I encourage you if you're not familiar with that or you haven't read it in quite a while James chapter 3 gives a lot of great instruction of how challenging it is to tame and control our own tongues. And particularly David's concern, he says, I want to keep my tongue from sin while the wicked, he says, are before me. You see what David's concern was? He says, the reason I don't want to sin with my tongue is, he says, because I realize that I'm around wicked people and they're watching me. Right. And it's such an easy way for the ungodly to point at us as God's people and say, oh, thought you were a Christian. Why would you be talking like that if you're a Christian? Why would you say that? Or why would you speak in that tone or in that attitude? You know, Or how come you're always criticizing? or ju- and, and so David says, I got to realize there, there are wicked people that don't know God before me. And so therefore, I want to really be careful that I use my words, he said, in a constructive way that I don't get myself into a jam. He says, verse two, I was mute with silence... I held my peace even from good and my sorrow was stirred up. He says, my heart was hot within me while I was musing, thinking it over contemplating He says the fire burned. Now I don't know if David was having an issue at work and he just, he really wanted to tell the boss what he thought or what, I mean, or if it was a family situation or what it was, but David says, you know, I tried to be silent. He says, And he says, honestly, I even held my peace. I didn't even say anything good. I decided I'm not going to say anything. I'm certainly not going to try and say anything bad. But he says, I'm just not even going to talk. He says, I even held my peace from saying anything good. I I just went completely radio silent, he says. I just decided I am not even going to engage. I'm just not even going to talk. I'm going to just function like a mute person, he says, and not even say anything. And he says, look, when I did that, My sorrow became stirred up and my heart grew hot within me. And the more I thought about it, it was like a burning inferno inside of me. So take notice. We don't want to say things wrong and we don't want to speak in ways that become sinful. But it also is not a healthy and constructive thing to just completely stop talking altogether. And like David, sometimes we think that's the answer. That's it. That's it. I'm just not talking. I just won't talk in this house the next five days, the next month. That's it. I'm just just not even talking anymore. I'm just not saying anything. I'm just cutting off all communication because if I cut off all communication, then I can't get in trouble. Look, that doesn't solve anything either because what does David say? He said, when I went completely silent and I just thought about it and I suppressed it all, he says, I just became like a raging volcano. Ready to erupt, he says, it was just like a burning fire within me when I just didn't talk at all. Look, we, we need to, at times, you know, properly let out what we're thinking. We need to communicate. We need to process things verbally. It's one of the reasons God's given us the ability to talk. So just complete silence isn't any good either. David said, that just made me angry. As I mused, he says, my sorrow and anger burned like a fire. And he said, then I spoke with my tongue. But notice, when David spoke with his tongue to process it verbally, look what he does. He doesn't vent volcanically on someone else and burn them with his fiery words. He says, I know who can handle this. God can. So he talks it through with God. Look, even if you go silent before others, make sure you at least talk to God about what's going on. And at least process it that way. So David just, he starts to pray. And that that was a wise thing. He says, verse four, Lord, make me to know my end. Lord, help me to learn something out of this. I don't know why this is happening. I don't know what's going on. But he says, I'm angry, I'm upset, I'm, I'm frustrated. But he says, Lord, would you just give me fresh perspective? Make me to know my end. Lord, show me things about myself through this. And what is the measure of my days? that I may know how frail I am. So he says, Lord, if nothing else through this process, would you just teach me things? Reveal things to me about myself, particularly how frail I am as a person and that I'm faulty and a frail, weak person, maybe even like the people who I'm so upset with right now. He says, verse five, indeed, you have made my days as hand breaths. And the hand breath was literally exactly what it sounds like, just the, the breath or the width of a hand. The idea is very short. And he says, Lord, my days are short. My age is nothing as before you. The idea is because God is the eternal God. And so our lifespan is just a vapor. It's just a, you know, a, a tiny little measure in comparison to the eternal God. It doesn't matter how old we are, what age we have, or, you know, how much wisdom we think. He says before you, God, certainly every man at his best state is but a vapor. I'm just like a puff of smoke, God, and it's gone. Surely every man walks about like a shadow, he says. Surely they busy themselves in vain. He heaps up riches and does not know who will gather them. So as David reflects upon the shortness of life, how frail and weak we are as human beings. He says, yet the funny thing is that we live our lives like we're going to be here forever on earth. Isn't that quite the you know, the oxymoron, the contrast. He says, Lord, we're so frail. Our life is so short. It's just a quick vapor and it's over in comparison to eternity and who you are. But yet he says, verse six, however, surely every man, they busy themselves in vain, right? And the word vain is just in a worthless way, in a profitless way, we busy ourselves. And boy, isn't, I mean, isn't that such a fitting description, particularly of our American culture, at least? busyness 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 we got to be busy 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 we run ourselves ragged with busyness whether it's just busyness trying to acquire wealth and riches as he speaks about there in verse six he heaps up riches again we how much is enough a little bit more More riches, we need more and more and more and more. And he heaps up piles and piles and piles of riches. And David says, here's proper perspective. I've learned, God, that person who heaps up all those riches, they don't even know who's going to gather it in the end. Again, what do we do? We heap up all these riches. And then we spend some of those riches to pay an attorney to write out a piece of paper and stamp it to say, okay, these are the people that are going to get it. And then guess what happens? You die and you have no idea where the money went. You're dead. <laughs> so we heap up all this money and we have all these. And, and, and then ultimately he says, we don't even know who's going to spend it. And sometimes all that wealth and riches that you heap up, all that does is someone who acquires it, they just take it and they ruin it all. They waste it all. They squandered away or they ruin their lives because they got too much money to spend. And he says, this is the vanity of what we do so often as human beings. You know, We busy ourselves instead of focusing on the reality that, wait a minute, life is short. Life's just but a vapor. It's just a quick snapshot. So therefore, instead of busying ourselves in vain, we should be occupying ourselves with the things that really do matter in life. You know, when we realize the shortness of life, it should cause us, like David saying here, Lord, give me perspective. Help me to measure, he said, my days to know my end. Because, see, when you begin to do that, it then helps you come into the right perspective of how you occupy yourself. Maybe what you don't busy and tie yourself up in, and maybe what you do use your time as a better steward in doing. Because you realize these are the things that aren't vain, that are meaningful and matter, you know, and, and all of a sudden, instead of trying to busy yourself with these 20 things, because that's what you got to do. That's what everybody's doing. That's the American way. You got to busy yourself. And, and maybe God says, no, maybe there's these one, two, three, five things. Those are the things that you should mainly give yourself to wholeheartedly with focused intention. And he says, because those things are profitable. You know, one of those things Paul talks about when he writes to the Corinthians and he says that. You know, that we should be steadfast and immovable. He says, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in, same word, vain. He says, that's the one thing you can do that, that God says is not going to be in vain. You may not heap up a bunch of earthly riches, but he says, boy, you'll, you'll store up riches in heaven. Because you're doing that which is not in vain. You're making eternal investments. Again, whether it's serving the Lord, whether it's putting our focus on our, you know, our families in the right places where they should be instead of getting caught up in the rat race of chaos on this earth and material wealth and nicer this and better that. And boy, we can, you know, time is the one thing we all want. But sadly, it's the one thing that most of us don't know how to spend very well. And it's such a constant learning lesson, and we often can get so sidetracked. And David here is asking God for help in light of this. He says, And now, Lord, what do I wait for? My hope is in you. Deliver me, he says, from all my transgressions. So David's biggest concern, more than anything else, Lord, my biggest concern is is my potential. To sin. I know that's what ruins my life. Deliver me from that. That's my biggest concern of is my own potential to do what's wrong. He says, and do not make me therefore the reproach of the foolish Lord. I don't want to make a fool of myself before those who are living foolish as well. I was mute and did not open my mouth. He says, because it was you who did it. Remove your plague from me. I am consumed by the blow of your hand with your, when with your rebukes, you correct man for iniquity You make his beauty melt away like a moth, he says. Surely, he goes back to every man is a vapor. Now, again, it seems that David is here alluding to God's chastening upon his life for some errors and mistakes that he has made. It seems that's clearly what he's indicating in verses 9 and 10 and 11. Here he says, Lord, I didn't open my mouth. I said nothing because it it was you who did it, Lord you were the one who brought this chastening into my life because i needed chastening from you as my father he says lord i needed you and what you did was right he says verse 11 when with rebukes you correct man for his iniquity and make his beauty melt away like a moth to remind him he's just a vapor the idea is just to humble a man to bring discipline and chastening look that is what chastening and correction does right it humbles us that's why hebrews 12 tells us that we have earthly fathers who if they're good earthly fathers they're not our buddies they're our dads right and so they teach us and they train us but they also correct us and chasten us and we respect them for that because we appreciate that though i may not always like them I grow to love them because I realize they helped shape my life. They helped keep me out of nonsense that would have just made my life worse. And they tried to steer me on a path that was moral and healthy and worthwhile in who I would become. But part of that process involves chastening, And he says, we have earthly fathers who chasten us for our good and we respect them. And so Hebrews 12, he says, so therefore, don't despise the chastening of the Lord. He's a good father. And he says there in that section, no chastening seems joyful or pleasant for the season, but painful. But it yields a peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who are trained by it. The idea there is when God is correcting me, rebuking me, chastening me, disciplining me for something in my life, whether in severity or just a little swat for something where I was starting to get off track and he wake up, boy, whatever it may be. Is it ever going to be pleasant? No. But what we need to learn how to do is instead of despising it or whining over it or trying to get out of it, to lean into it, (laughs) to lean into it and fully embrace it. Lord, this is not pleasant. It is painful. This is painful. But God says, right, but it's that painful experience that will purge you of the desire to want to repeat that ever again it's that painful experience that will shape your character and and give you humility and appreciation and it will cause you to become a better person on the other side. So he says, you know, embrace it. It will yield the fruit of righteousness, of right living in your life. And, and David here appreciated that reality. Lord, he says, sometimes we may think we are pretty hot. He says, but Lord, you have a way, verse 11, to correct man for his iniquity, where you make his beauty melt away like a moth. And you remind us sometimes, Lord, who we are that we're just a vapor. And notice he says, la" or think about that. You know, sometimes it's, it's good to think about that. You know, sometimes we, like we talk about with, you know, if you've raised children, you're getting a little big for your britches there, aren't you? And I think sometimes God has to remind me of that. Maybe he reminds you of that sometimes. You get a little big for your britches there, aren't you? Let's so remember who you are. Let's keep a proper perspective. Let's have humility and remember what this is about, that you're weak. And I'm strong and that you're mistake laden. And yet sometimes we need God's correction and we want to embrace that because that's really what helps us keep that right perspective. And it helps us relate to other people properly so often as well. David says, Psalm uh, Psalm 39, verse 12. He says, hear my prayer, O Lord, give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears. Lord, I'm broken, he says, I'm a stranger with you, Lord, I feel disconnected, he says, a sojourner as my fathers were. Remove your gaze, he says, from me, that I may regain strength before I go away and am no more. Interesting. Remove your gaze from me. He felt like the Lord's searching, piercing eyes were upon him. Right? Have you ever done something wrong and after you've done something wrong and maybe when you were younger you you, know, you caught the gaze of your, your father just giving you that look and you're thinking oh man oh man <laughs> you busted oh man you know or maybe it happens in your marriage once in a while your spouse you catch it and you go oh man oh man well david here think about it he's talking about the gaze of almighty god the holy, righteous, pure, almighty God looking upon him, seeing what he had done. And he says, Lord, it's just, I feel like you're just searching me with your eyes. And he says, please, Lord, look look away. He says, Lord, b- before I go away and I'm no more, he's almost like saying, Lord, your eyes are so powerful and piercing. it literally, Lord, I, if you could just take a look at me and if you keep staring at me, it's gonna just destroy me. It's gonna just destroy me. And he felt literally wiped out by, it. you know, isn't it interesting that when, the Bible gives us the picture of the glorified, resurrected King Jesus in his eternal condition. Now it speaks in Revelation one of how his eyes are like a flame of fire. That this fiery gaze again, what's fire? It's this purifying thing. And that's how the Bible describes how the Lord is able to look upon us, that he sees us, he searches us, he knows us. And boy, that has a way of, of kind of almost like weakening us. And, and, he, and again, the Lord doesn't do such because he wants to ruin us. The Lord does such because he wants us to realize that nothing goes without his notice, that his eyes on us and that he's aware. You know, I think one of the most beautiful pictures of you know, a glance of the Lord is if you remember in the New Testament, and this reminds us of the tremendous grace of our Lord. Remember Peter, when they told him that he was going to make his mistake, you know, Jesus communicated to him, you know, before the rooster crows, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Ah, no, Lord, no, 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 no. Matthew, yes. I mean, I can see him doing it. Judas, certainly. I mean, nobody's going to question. I mean, Peter, I mean, he's always messing up, but not me, Lord. You know, and, and, you know, and, and as he says this to me, he says, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And then ultimately what happens? bottom drops out right major failure and as peter goes through that major failure it says that he turns and his eyes meet with jesus and jesus says looked at him And the language is that he looked down into his soul and i don't think it was a look of peter What is wrong with you, that is it, you are ruined, you're benched forever. Instead, it was it was, I believe, a look of the gracious eyes of the Lord. And here's why I believe that, because it tells us in Genesis chapter six that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. You know, so even these fiery, piercing eyes of the Lord that can look so deep into our soul and knows us better than we know ourselves. Even that, it's not because he's angry and he wants to destroy us. It's his loving glance that looks deep into our soul and says to us when we're at our worst condition and when we committed our greatest failure, it's when he looks down into our soul and he says, look, when are you going to remember? I know you better than you know yourself. So don't play games with me you may play games with everybody else, but he says, my eye is on you and I don't just see what you're doing. I see right down into your soul. So don't play games with me because I see it all. But he says, I'm gracious enough that despite those things that I see about you, that no one else as a human being knows about you, I'm still the one who loves you and who died on the cross for your sins and the one who embraced you and accepts you and forgives you And again, what does he ultimately want? He just wants honesty and sincerity that we would bring ourselves before the Lord in just humility. And like David, we would remember, man, Lord, I'm so frail, I'm so weak, but thank you, Lord, that you love me and work in my lives the way that you do. So let's stand, let's end there this evening. Psalm 40, I encourage you to read ahead. Just some real beautiful things in Psalm 40 is David There speaks in some very wonderful ways.